This week, I'm joined once again by writer and occultist John Michael Greer. The idea for this discussion came to me after reading John's latest book, A Magical Education, Talks on Magic and Occultism, a work which acts as a great written introduction to the occult and its many misconceptions. As such, the theme for this episode is Occultism 101, a discussion based around the frequently asked questions relating to the occult and magic. If you wish to support Hermetic's podcast, please find our merchandise, Patreon, and donation links in the description below. Enjoy. Okay, so, John Michael Gray, uh, thanks very much for joining us on Hermetics once again. Well, thank you very much for having me on. Uh, so, this episode is uh, titled Occultism 101. So, the, uh, the mm-hmm. idea is um, the common questions and the common um, themes which people who aren't within occultism, you know, the, the places their mind goes when they hear that word, uh, mm-hmm. the dispelling many, many of the uh, myths and illusions and uh, misconceptions of occultism. That actually, as I devised these questions, I, I found that that was actually quite a bulk of them, that occultism generally, uh, from uh, someone who hasn't read anything about it, is, is almost entirely misconceptions. Um, mm-hmm. So... I'm sure you have uh, explained this many times to many people, but if you would enlighten us as to your personal occult history, that how you how you um, came across occultism and and why it mm-hmm. sparked something in you and, and your path which you you've taken. Okay, it's it's been kind it's kind of a long story, but I'll I'll, I'll do the, the the short good parts version. Um, growing up in um, suburbs in suburban the United States in the 1960s and 1970s. Um, let, let's just say this, suburbia is boring. It's probably the most boring arrangement for, for human residents that has ever been invented. And I was, I, I was frantic for, for something, anything, that would show me that the world was less one-dimensionally tedious than, than my parents and my teachers and the media all insisted it had to be. So, you know, I, I read about everything you can imagine. I was a, I was an expert in werewolf trivia by the age of 10. I was in two flying saucers. I was into, and of course, all of this was very readily available in the 1970s. The big paperback boom that took off in the late 1960s involved a lot of alternative realities titles. So I wallowed in that stuff. Um, over the course of the 1970s, I gradually became aware that, you know, that, that there was a sort of rough division in the various kind of alternative reality stuff that was out there between the um, simply weird people experiencing something weird or at least telling stories about experiencing something weird. That was kind of one category. And then there was this other thing that nobody really talked much about called occultism, which was about doing things, about learning how to do things, how to experience things, and so on. And I was drawn to that um, very, I'm, I'm not really sure I could explain why at first. I was quite young at the time, but it fascinated me. And I ended up over the course of, um, in the mid-1970s, finding a couple of books on one particular tradition of occultism, the tradition of the, of the Golden Dawn, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, to give it its full name, a magical order founded in England in the 1880s, which um, is still very much a going concern now um, under various managements. And but I found some books and I did some practices and I, you know, did some rituals and some meditations and so on. And before long, I was going, wow, something's actually happening when I do these rituals. I don't know that I can explain what it is, but something's actually happening. And it kind of went from there. 
um, over the course of the many years between now and then, I, I, I did put, I did end up putting in a little over 20 years of intensive work into the Golden Dawn tradition, study the whole system. Um, I've done a couple of other um, series of, you know, serious courses of study. In terms of magic, um, I have studied everything from um, druidry to um, old-fashioned southern conjure, also known as hoodoo or rootwork, which is one of our one of our American um, indigenous magics. To oh, I don't know what all else, um, you know, Renaissance astrological magic, you name it. I've studied a lot of things. I served for 12 years as Grand Archdruid of the Ancient Order of Druids in America. That and 350 will get you a cup of coffee, but it was, it was a wild ride, and I learned a lot from that. And, of course, I published my first book on magic in 1996, and I've been writing about it ever since. So that's kind of the, cap, the potted capsule biography of a, of a life in magic. So how young were you when you started uh, practicing? Um, about 15. 15. And what was the um, general attitude of the people? The Oh, I, I didn't. I didn't let anyone know about it. Good heavens! I had I had one close friend who was also practicing at that time, and we we quiet, you know, we shared thing, you know, talk about magic and magic books the way you know other teenage boys at the same time shared copies of, of girly magazines. <laughs> it was every the the universal belief on the part of everybody around me, and of course most people even today, is that that stuff is it's either you know clueless medieval superstition or it's e. Evil, and or both, and so no, we didn't. I, I didn't let anybody know that I was doing this stuff. <laughs> okay, so that the reluctance to tell people, you know, there's so many reasons to be reluctant to tell people that you're doing it. That it's almost, mm -hmm. it just, you just think it's almost not the bother because nothing's really going to come of it. You know, people aren't. Well, it, it, it depends very much on, on, you know, what you're doing and, and how you're doing it. Once I started publishing books on the subject, of course, the cat was out of the bag. And so I kind of had to fess up, yes, I'm an occultist, deal. And that was that actually worked fairly well because um, one of the things that happened when you do that is that other people who are in the occult closet, so to speak, pop out and say, oh, actually, I practice occultism too. I think it's really cool, you know, and so away we go. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so that that was the way that worked out. Okay, <laughs> no surprises there, really. <laughs> mm. um, the 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 next question is is the other one, which I'm sure you've answered many many times, and you can keep this as brief as possible because I don't really think it's um, that complex on its own. And it, the question is simply, what is occultism? Actually, there's a very easy answer to that, mm -hmm. because we can we start with the word occult, which, by the way, has nothing to do with the word cult. That's a common misconception. Occult simply means hidden. Okay, that's what the word means. Um, when a when astronomers, when when like the moon goes in front of a planet, we'll talk about Venus being occulted by the moon, meaning hidden by the moon. If you go to your doctor to get an occult blood test, that doesn't mean they want to find out if you're sacrificing chickens. It means that you know they want to find out if there's hidden blood in your stool sample. Okay, so occultism is of the the old term was occult philosophy. That was the philosophy, the, the way of understanding that had to do with hidden things, with the hidden side of reality, <clears throat> the stuff that we don't see with ordinary five senses. Um, later on in the 19th century, that got shortened to occultism, uh, which is kind of an awkward word, but the, the same principle applies. It's the, it is the entire field of study dealing with the invisible causes of visible things. 
it deals with the hidden side of reality, the mind side of reality, this, you know, the stuff that we have to learn how to perceive. Mm -hmm. So in the sense that occult means hidden and there's things which mm -hmm. are hidden, uh, is the practice of occultism then primarily a, a form of revealing is, is, is that which hidden is, is already there um, is already there, mm -hmm. or does it have to be oh, yeah. revealed? So it's already there, but occultism is the practice to reveal it. Yeah, it's it's all it's already all there. Um, in, in the basic one of the basic principles of occult philosophy is that we actually live in the in, in a world that is full of magic, that is full of occult forces, that is full of spirits and souls and angels and all kinds of other beings. We just don't notice it. Partly because of the limitations of our senses, and partly because we've all been raised with this ideology that says these things don't exist, and so we've all we were all taught as children to ignore the the our perceptions of the hidden reality. So the occultist does a series of things to uh, learns kinds of meditation and kinds of other ways of focusing the mind and so on that gradually reawakens that capacity that we all had when we were children, and then we learn you learn how to direct that you learn how to work with the various subtle energies and so on that are in the in the hidden world it's it's all very straightforward mm -hmm. and just just jumping back to something mm -hmm. you kind of joke, joked about earlier because when i wrote out these questions the, the actually the first one that popped into my mind because um i meditated briefly on on the, on the question of what is occultism in terms of uh, what a layman would think and it, it was something you've already brought up which is the uh, you know occultist which instantly brings to mind in in the average person you know devil worshipping evil 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 <laughs> satanists uh, a little bit uh -huh. more evil it's a bit of murder lob it all in you know um, yeah, exactly. Uh, evil, evil, evilness. <laughs> a side of evil on the, you know, a, a bucket of evil sauce. Yeah, with a yeah. with a kind of shrieking, terrified woman somewhere in the background, saying, ah, "Think, of, think, yeah. Of, yeah, think of the children grasping her purse." For, for, forget, for, don't forget the, the the shrieking woman is scantily clad if she's not actually. <laughs> okay, you've got to have because there's got to be that little that little frisson of sex in there somewhere too. Of course. Now, we're ta okay. There's some history here. Um. And it is not actually that complementary to one of the major institutions of Western society, okay? Um, it is the basic gimmick of organized religion to insist that you cannot deal with, this, with the unseen world on your own. No, you have to pay um, a chunk of change every month to a priest or a minister who will do it for you. And that's, that's basically the way that organized religion makes its money. By convincing people that they have to, they have to, you know, go to church once a week and listen, listen to somebody drone on with this, you know, with the hour-long sermon, and and that by doing this, they'll be kept safe. They won't have to deal with the unseen themselves, and because you can't, because it's all full of ooga wooga monsters that are going to jump out and eat you if you don't. They have been terrifying people with that line for the last two thousand years. Okay, mm -hmm. and and. That's it. If if you ever if you ever remember old fashioned soap commercials where they would be going on about what happens if you use brand X, and, and they'd go through these absurd little skits about how you'd be fired by your job and dumped by your fiance, and everyone would shun you because you'd use brand X instead of you know um, ultra sludge laundry soap or whatever it was. That's exactly the same mentality that organized religion uses toward magic because we're brand X. We are the great we are the great threat to their business model because we teach people how to deal with the unseen themselves, and so 
devil worship and, and naked cuties screaming in the background. Um, all of that very much feeds into that same, that same delusion. Now, let me qualify this. There are things in the unseen that are really not something you want to deal with. You know, the unseen world is not all uh, well-behaved sweetness and light. This is why one of the first things you learn if you're a practicing occultist is what's called a banishing ritual, a basic practice that enables you to keep yourself and your surroundings clear uh, of noxious entities. And, you know, oh, also, by the way, um, most occultists, certainly all traditional occultists, um, believe in God or the gods. There's a religious dimension to occultism. It is not about, you know, cackling evil and saying, I'll, I'll show you God or all this kind of silliness. There's a strong religious dimension. You, if the unseen exists, and there are many kinds of beings in the, unseen, in the unseen, there are beings who are greater than human, vastly greater and wiser and better than humans. We call those gods or, or, or God. And... You know, it doesn't make any sense to try to pretend that doesn't exist. It's simply pointing out that you don't have to go through the middleman to deal with these things. So is there a difference there between occultism and religion? Or has, is, is it sort of just a, a murky line where the religious parties want to keep it kind of pure? Um, it's, it's pretty murky. Um, there's basically, religion is one set of ways of dealing with the unseen. And now, to be fair, there are religious traditions that are fairly cool about about people practicing magic. Um, I don't know whether this is true where you are, but over here, the the Episcopalian Church, a what's the Anglican Church on your side of the pond? Um, the Episcopalian Church, basically, nobody asks. <laughs> it's very much the sort of don't ask, don't tell thing. And so, I know a lot of Christian occultists who are who are Episcopalian, so they go to they go to church every Sunday. The a religion that still has a lot of the old traditional rituals and so on, those are magically effective. Those are, those are significant ways, they're useful ways of working with certain aspects of the unseen, and it's perfectly okay to do them. You can combine that with magic just fine, even though you know, you, the minister down the street may think you can't. But it's very much the difference between, um, well, it's, it's, in a way, it's like the difference between going to a restaurant for your meals and um, cooking your own meals at home. The restaurateur wants you to think that you can't possibly make a good meal at home. And you have to you know, eat three meals a day at the restaurant because that's, that's how he makes his living. Um, it's not true. You can cook a perfectly good meal at home, but you know sometimes it's okay. You can, you can also go to the restaurant now and again and have a good meal too. Mm -hmm. But then I guess in, with that metaphor that the, the restaurant in this, this case can often be, can pretty much lock you in uh, as to kind of um, make you believe that there is no other possibility there. Exactly. Yeah, it's as though they're going they're going around spreading the claim that all the food that comes from the from grocery stores and everything you know, uh, kitchen appliances are out to get you. And everything that comes from the grocery store is contaminated with the creeping gunk and the black lurky, and it's you know it's going to kill you. And it's all, all an attempt to get you to show up three meals a day at the restaurant. <laughs> mm -hmm. So with with the the idea that. As soon as we're kind of dealing with the unseen, that, that, that isn't, I mean, not necessarily proof of God's, but if you're dealing with the unseen, then this conception of God comes forth uh, in this mm -hmm. way. And, and this is quite a, I guess, a quite, quite a loaded question. Um, are all occultists then pantheists? Um, no, no. Uh, many occultists, the occultists, it's, it's very much a matter of saying, you know, 
ask three occultists to get at least five answers. Occultists are an ornery lot. They, a lot of them disagree with each other about important things. In terms of traditional occultism, um, as opposed to some of the avant-garde stuff going on now, which still hasn't sorted things out. In terms of trad occultism, you have some occultists who are monotheists, some who are polytheists, some who are pantheists. And um, there's also various confusing blendings and blurrings among those. Oh, oh, animists. Don't forget animists also. So there's actually a lot of disagreement there. And one of the important things to remember is that among occultists, it's not that big a deal. We start from the assumption that we have very limited capacities to know what's actually going on in the cosmos. And so when we talk about theories such as monotheism or, or, or pantheism, we're talking about theories. We're talking about human ways of understanding a very complex reality. And the important thing is, what are you doing? Is it working? And how's it affecting you? Back to the, 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 the social aspects that we've kind of, we've touched on there. Mm -hmm. Why is it um, that as a society, we still have, we're still very much terrified of the occult. You know, it's, uh, mm -hmm. I mean, everyone, everyone, it's a cliche to say the final taboo. Everyone has this thing of, oh, it's the last taboo. But it does seem that, you know, throughout history, it's just consistently has never, there's never been a prolonged period um, mm -hmm. where it's been at least widely, accept widely accepted. Yeah. Well, within, in, in the Western world, in the Western world, that's true. Um, that's not in, in many other societies. It's not true. Um, there are many places around the world where um, people practice magic as a matter of course. It's normal. Um, it's integrated with religion. It's not you know it's not a big deal at all in India and Japan and so on. So in uh, places where traditional Chinese culture survives, such as Taiwan and, and so on, um, you know it's just not an issue. But within the Western world, we've got a complicated history here. And part of it is that when the, when the scientific revolution happened and you had um, organized science starting the process of taking over from organized religion, an enormous number of the basic assumptions and the basic taboos of organized religion got scooped up by the, by the, the founders of science. It, it, have you ever noticed, for example, there's one thing on which Richard Dawkins agrees with the Archbishop of Canterbury, and that's that astrology is bad and wrong and evil. <laughs> okay, it's the one, they absolutely agree on that. There's complicated history going on there, which we don't really have to get into, but basically the, the scientific attitude toward occultism was borrowed or stolen, if you will, from the Christian attitude toward occultism, and they simply carried it straight on over. Um, it doesn't really work so well when, you know, it's not a matter of, you know, because the, the Christians are saying, okay, you, ha you can deal with the unseen, but you can only deal with the unseen in our way through uh, the mediation of our priests and ministers and so on. That's one thing. It's another thing to have the scientists say, there is no unseen, we don't care what you saw, um, and don't you dare deal with it in any way at all. That's one of the reasons that occultism has been um, a, a growing presence in society ever since the, the early 19th century, because um, you know, so many people are, are experiencing things that, that don't fit within the scientific worldview, and they're looking around, and they're looking at what's left of organized Christianity and say, well, I don't really think that's, a, you know, that's much better. And then they're finding out about occultism and say, oh, so I can actually deal with this myself. I can actually do these practices, pursue this work, um, enrich my life in various, in various constructive ways, and away they go. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, there's a couple of questions that spring to mind from that. And, and one, of course, mm-hmm. is that if we're to uh, think of, say, uh, the Industrial Revolution, and I, I always use the term modernity, and think it covers it mm-hmm. well enough for people to understand what I'm referring to. So I'd say the late 18th century, early 19th century onwards. Um, mm-hmm. Is there a difference between the contemporary attitude the contemporary attitude to occultism in that now we have uh more innovative distractions and things which are kind of pulling us away from our being uh they love that word mm-hmm. and of course or or have these distractions or have we just always loved to have been distracted or is is, is this a, a, a one of the the more depressing symptoms of modernity um, it doesn't seem to be to be any different now. People people responded to the pamphlet press in the 17th century the way they respond to the internet now. There were flame wars in the pamphlet press. Um, there was um, you know, people were just as excited by um, traveling in 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 trains that moved at the unspeakable velocity of 30 miles an hour in 1850. As people are about the supersonic travel today, um, the media change—it's the same stuff. That you know, the the cheap shoddy journalism is cheap shoddy journalism, whether it's being printed on newsprint or whether it's coming over you over your smartphone. Um, the technologies have changed, but the quest for distraction has not. And um, most of the, the major difference that I see is that it's more live action these days. People, you know, people in, in 1700, let's say, um, would go to um, a, a bull baiting and have you know, watch dogs being sicked on a bull until they, they, you know, more or less killed each other, um, you know, or a boxing, a live boxing match or what have you. Um, nowadays, we just watch gory movies. It's the same thing, just a different, different um Way of delivery system for the for the experience, and of course, uh, less of a mess to clean up nowadays. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that much has changed. Um, modernity has had some important effects, but mostly it's been the application of more and more complex technology to the same old drives and cravings and needs. How about um, prior to modernity? Do you, do you still think there was the urge for destruction there, or, or was yeah. What about the Middle Ages? What about earlier yeah, times? Yeah. People, um, human beings have not actually changed that much. There's this great passage, and I forget which Roman moralist, where he's talking about how kids these days—I mean, they don't listen to their elders. They go dri- they they go driving in chariots at appalling speeds. They listen to the most god awful music. It it could just you know it could be coming out of some old cotter today. Um, it, people people like distraction. They used to get distracted by watching people fight to the death with swords, okay? Um, and, and, of course, the, some of the other passions have not changed noticeably since um, the invention of sex, whenever that happened. Um, and you know, I, People like to be distracted. It's kind of, you know, you, you can tell that we are, we are relatives of monkeys. We, you know, have that sort of, <laughs> ooh, look at that thing. Mm. And so, you know, we also have other capacities. We have the capacity to do other things. But, but as a species, we like our distractions. And, I, you know, modernity, again, applies brand new techniques to age-old cravings. And that's basically all it does. The question that springs to mind when you, when you, when you talk about this with this um, Roman 
you know, almost like a historical repetition of the teenagers mm-hmm. with the loud music driving faster, et cetera, et cetera. That almost makes me think that I don't know how you personally theorize of time. I've read a few of your essays on uh, deep time and things, things mm-hmm. along these lines, but it makes me think of what wonder whether or not occultism is a, is a individual means to kind of mentally escape cyclical time, you know, like the, the eternal return mm-hmm. and to escape cyclicity and, and habitual natures. Well, basically, yes, because the one of the one of the core ideas of, of occult philosophy is that the the human stage, let's call it. There's we, we we were into evolution long before Darwin got there. Okay, so the idea is that souls evolve through a series of different bodies, um, starting with the simplest possible animal forms, working their way up, you know, through these these complex these various increasingly complex, increasingly intelligent forms. They reach the human level, and then that's the great test bed. That's the that's where you have to break through to attain self knowledge, to attain the capacity for self discipline and self guidance. You go through enough, you know, you go through some human lives. You achieve that moment of awakening, and then you go on to levels that are beyond human. Okay, the human level is there for a reason. It is what it is for a reason. It keeps on repeating endlessly because there's an endless succession of new souls who need that experience. And so the human world as such is never going to get any better because it's it's doing what it's there to do. And it's combination of beauty and ugliness, uh, wisdom and stupidity, violence, depravity, and kindness. All of that mixed together, that's what souls need at this level to drive them to that point of awakening where they can become capable of, of you know, of rising to the next level up. And so, yeah, that's uh, occultism... Any any form of spirituality, really. Um, the, the occultists will tell you, although Christians will deny this, of course. Occultists will tell you that when occult, when Christians are talking about heaven, what they're talking about is the next level up. And you know, when you die and ascend to heaven, that means you've actually succeeded in accomplishing what um, you know what you need to do at the human level. You can go on. Um, of course, that also implies kind of that hell is where we are right now. But you know, draw your own conclusions. Before we get into kind of where occultism can take us, which is we're dipping our toes into there, I'd just like to uh, stay on on. I realise that many of the the assumptions or presumptions and preconceptions that, that the layman has, you know, there's there's no nice way to kind of uh, mm-hmm. solidify the average Joe in this. Uh, many yeah. of the preconceptions they have about occultism actually revolve around their notion of reality and and as far as i can see their notion of reality really can be described as a very constrictive mode of reality or idea of reality which is really um materialism which is you know i can touch it it is is there it is and when people say real this is what they mean you know people say occultism that's not real they mean it's not a an object well no and that's and that's very true basically the default mode for human beings is materialism, and that's why that's why you know religious tradition, traditions, philosophers, and occultists through the years have been all trying to point to all the things that are not physical that are still affecting our lives in important ways. But that's one of the lessons we have to learn that it's not all matter and meat. So you know that's just that that, that again seems to be hardwired into human beings. There, I've I've read. Um, Hindu religious texts from um thousand years ago that are talking about how the first thing you have to do is get past the illusion that you are your physical body and nothing more. I did mean, mean to mention this when we were on the, the subject of 
technology. Not that I want to go too far down that route, but there was a really interesting mm-hmm. quote that that was in um, in a magical education, which was, "You you say magic isn't technology, and it doesn't do the things that technology does." And it, uh-huh. this got me thinking that you know, in a world where practically everything in our daily lives is uh, connected to or is utilizing technology in a way almost. 24 7 unless people are asleep you know there's always some form of technology basically glued to their hip if not attached to their face um Mm -hmm. it's rare to find something that kind of literally isn't technology and it's 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 i i I can't really uh i couldn't think as to how something can't be i mean that's that shows how how bad it has a grip so (laughs) it's difficult to theorize now what you know what technology isn't because it's you know our, our lives basically are technology really so in what way mm-hmm. you know where what, what are the, the the differences here okay the the best place to start there is to start with the harry potter movies okay because everyone's seen them everyone knows about harry potter the boy you know the boy wizard and his pals and the mat everything you see somebody do in a harry potter movie is not magic okay it's technology it's technology using inadequate means so, you know, when he points a wand at someone and goes, ungrammaticus latinus, or whatever he's saying, you know, and, and lightning bolts shoot out and various uh, special effects go off, that's not magic. <laughs> By definition, if you see Harry Potter doing it, it's not, it's not magic. It has nothing to do with real occultism. Um, think for a moment about, the, about what I've said about the unseen, about the fact there are things we don't see that shape the world as we see it. Think about the effect of attitudes. Think about the effect of the ways we color our consciousness by our attitudes. This is a place, psychology is one place where you can really see the the sort of leading edge of what's not material. Of course, the scientists want to say, no, no, it's all your brain, but, well, we can leave them to their fantasies. Um, The way you look at the world, the way you experience the world, the way your emotions and your past experiences shape what you experience nowadays is very powerful. It's actually more powerful in many ways than what's actually out there. If you walk, if you, if you watch people go through the course of their lives, and this person is having a relatively happy life, and this person is having a totally miserable life, and they actually they, they work in the same place, they live in the same uh, in the same building, they you know they, they they shop at the same grocery, they actually you know they have very similar lives. Why is one happy and the other miserable? It's the it's. You know, that part of the unseen that goes on inside your own head is the part that most people are at least dimly aware of. Now, that's just the part that's within your head. Imagine for a moment, just to speculate, that there's things going on all around you all the time like what's going on in your head, like your attitudes and your assumptions and your presuppositions, but it fills the world and it shapes what goes on inside your head. There are these patterns of meaning and of understanding and of feeling that are all around you all the time, and you're tapping into them, and maybe you don't even notice. Back in the day, and I'm going to be dating myself here, back in the day when long hair and beards like mine were fairly common on young men, um, you'd, you'd often hear people talking about the vibes, man. And, you know, you'd walk into a place and you'd, and it'd feel kind of creepy and say, man, there's a really heavy vibe in that place. And you'd be talking about a party and say, oh, man, the vibe was so smooth. It was great. What you're talking, the vibe, okay, the feeling, the sort of general character of a place or a person or an event that isn't something physical. It's not something you can touch. You can't tap it with a with a hammer. You can't sample it with a, with a you know, an 
device to sample air constituents, but it's present. It's powerful. It shapes an enormous amount of our experience. That's another part of the unseen that many people can, uh, can deal with. Now, take it one step further. Let's imagine that world of the unseen, that world of vibes, man, is inhabited. There are beings there that do not have bodies like our bodies. There are beings there we cannot sense with our physical senses. Some of them are potentially helpful to us. Some of them are emphatically not. All of them are part of this unseen environment that that we have to work with all the time. Whether we know it or not, whether we do it deliberately or not, we're always being affected by that world you know, by, by our own our own internal unseen, by the unseen surrounding us, and by beings that inhabit the unseen, and so the occultist simply says, "Okay, we're, this this is part of the world that we're always in all the time. It's not some fantastic place, you know, on the other side of Diagon Alley. It's here. It's now, and we might as well learn to get good at it." Okay, and the and the way we get good at it, of course, is to practice magic. Um, mm-hmm. Now. You've already um, stated, and you state this again in your in your uh, in a magical education that that magic and this is just as I understand it the 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 spelling of magic in relation to occultism. I imagine years and years ago it was M A G I C, but was it was it Crowley who added the K yeah, yeah. to make it clear? I know, I don't know why, but I I, I have a, a an inkling that you're not a big fan of Crowley. I, I, I'm impressed by your psychic perceptions. No, I'm not a fan of. I'm not a fan of, of Alistair Crowley at all. Um, Crowley puts the K on the end of magic, or as I tend to pronounce it, magic, to basically make it a brand name. That was his brand. That was his his little pose. And you know, he he was he was in many ways a very good writer. Um, he's certainly worth reading. If you're going to get into classic Western occultism, you probably need to have a, you know, to spend some time reading Crowley's books. But, um, he had massive problems. And he all, he, he's really in many ways the best example of what not to do. You know, when you start out life rich and, um, talented and intelligent and handsome and, um, with the world at your feet and you end up as a burnt out heroin addict in a small town flop house outside of Hastings with an estate worth, what was it? 18 shillings and a name that you personally have made the la- a laughing stock on three continents. If that's the result of a life spent in magic, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> the only reason, the only reason that anybody remembers Alistair Crowley these days is that, um, after he died, some years after he died, in fact, a guy named Grady McMurtry um, in the Bay Area, who had who had studied with him while McMurtry was in 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 Britain during the Second World War with the Air Force, um, McMurtry claimed that he'd gotten some kind of document from Crowley making him Crowley's heir, and he proceeded to pick up what you know these sort of remnants of Crowley's work and rebuild it into an organization, the Order, the Order of Templi Orientis, and make it a very successful. Um, school of, of magical and occult training. And so, you know, McMurtry did that with, with Alistair Crowley as kind of his figurehead. McMurtry was a brilliant guy. He was a very, very, very capable occultist. And um, what he did with the, what he did with Crowley's legacy is, is frankly very impressive. But Crowley, not so much. Yeah, it does, it does seem that way that many of the um, people who are 
who were connected to Crowley in a direct way uh, were kind of far more uh, well-rounded. So uh, Regardy and Jack, mm-hmm. Jack Parsons and Kenneth Grant, all, all of... Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And even now, you know, Jack, Jack Parsons' life story is, is a, a two-season TV show on, on kind of... Uh, main- Mainstream, I didn't, I didn't know that. mainstream TV. So uh, Thelema <laughs> is now getting its kind of um, uh-huh. televisual heyday, um, which is very strange. And it's I, very. I, I was I was completely unaware of that. Uh, it's, fascinating. I, I haven't <laughs> owned a television in my adult life, so it's not surprising. Uh, it's it's called Strange Angel, and the the, the forum posts on Thelema forums, as you can imagine, are fantastic. Um, <laughs> but anyway, moving moving away. So uh, magic with a K. Uh, was was Crowley's was Crowley's? <laughs> I, that, we, that, we, just inf- that just constantly reminds me of that Monty Python skit. You know, what do you mean, David Copperfield with a K? <laughs> Magic with a K. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the, the Python ears could have had so much fun with that. But go on, I'm sorry. That's fine. That's fine. Um, so yeah, Magic with a K is a specifically Crowleyan thing. But mm-hmm. uh, would you, would you kind of? agree somewhat that there is something useful in that, that it does differentiate it from the uh, fantasy, you know, there's a huge difference between fantasy magic and magic with mm-hmm. a K. If, if, if we, you know, remove if, if, magic if we, with a K if, from Crowley's if, narcissistic... If you, want, if, you want to use the K, if you want to use the K as your marker, yeah. Um, I, my, my thought, I mean, I'm a long-time reader of fantasy. A fantasy fiction. I grew up on um, Tolkien, among others, and you know, so I I don't have that much trouble telling them apart. It's it's very much like telling the difference between um, actually having sex and reading a you know cheap porn novel or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's you know, um, a lot of fantasy fiction is basically the 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 magical the occult equivalent of porn. It's what people read when they're not in a position to actually have the real thing. Empty, de- empty desires. But of course, this is the thing. The thing with this is that people's presumptions, once again, is is that you know, if someone was to say, I mean, if someone was to dare to say, you know, what do you do? Oh, I'm a magician. Uh, people would obviously instantly joke, oh, can you shoot fire out of your hands? So exactly, in, in yeah. this in this way, um, Im- immediately with- people go to the go to the fantasy cliches, yeah. Or they'd they'd but, call someone to get you sectioned, unfortunately. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, to have you taken in for for three days for you know three day involuntary commitment for observation. Yeah, um, this is one of the reasons that um, some people these days are starting to use the term occultist because um, that hasn't been given anything. I mean, it actually did for a while back in the in the nineteen twenties and nineteen thirties, where you had um, pulp fiction figures like um, the Shadow. You know who studied occult mysteries in Tibet, uh, or or Doctor Strange in the early days of the Doctor Strange comic book. Um, you know there there was a lot of overlap between fantasy occultism and real occultism. But these days it almost all focuses on magic, and so you can say, well, no, I'm an occultist, and you differentiated yourself, and you don't have to have to abuse the English language by tacking K's on everywhere. Um, so with with this uh, occultist form of magic, what what can we kind of actually expect from it? Um, well, I'm going to start here with Dion Fortune's classic definition of magic, which is that magic is the art and science of causing change in consciousness in accordance with will. Okay. Now, that's not a complete definition, but it's really good as a working rule. Um, basically, you, anything, that is, anything that has to do with consciousness, you can change through magic. Partly that means your entire life. 
Most of what holds us back from achieving our dreams is consciousness. We're convinced we're, we're not worthy. We're convinced we're not able. We broadcast signals that convince people they ought to back away from us. Um, uh, let's, let's, take a, let's take a standard example, um, love magic, okay? Most of the time, when, pe- when, when somebody can't get a good relationship going, what happens is that there's something going on in their, in their mind and personality that is making that not happen. Either they're giving off nonverbal signals that say, back away, ladies, or, they're, or you know, they are themselves backing away from anything that, that might lead to that kind of intimacy, or they're, they're consistently attracted to the kind of person who, want, who will, by definition, want nothing to do with them, or they can start a relationship, but then they load all these irrational expectations onto the relationship that drives the other person away. There's all these various ways that people can mess up their love lives. You can go to, you, you can find a really good psychologist if you're lucky and you can fix, and you can fix some of those, maybe. That's where magic comes in. With magic, what you want to do is use non-rational methods. You're using symbolism. You're using um, ritual, which is basically uh, emotionally charged psychodrama. Using all these things to change your state of consciousness regarding relationships. And if you do that, you stop doing the things that drive potential girlfriends away. And guess what? You know, you've done this thing, and you happen to be out at out, out your local, and somebody you might never have talked to happens to be sitting next to you. You start a conversation with her. You know, um, two weeks later, you're in bed together, and three, and you know, another another year, and you're actually, you know, you're going down the aisle. Um, I've seen that happen many, many times. It so much of what shapes our lives is a function of consciousness. Now, that's phase one. Okay, and that's actually the, the the easiest thing for most people to do because you have more influence over your consciousness than you have over anything else. You just have to know how to use it. Okay, now we start moving a little further away. You can also shape other people's consciousness. That's tricky because that brings in ethical issues. Um, we can get into the ethics later, but the crucial thing is you want to be really careful when shaping other people's consciousness. If at all possible, you want their permission. You want to talk through. This is what the professional mage does. You know, you, somebody comes to you and says, I, you know, I, I need this X, Y, Z kind of help. And you make sure they're clear on what we're talking about here. And then you go ahead and help them through the process. But um, you can have influence by magical means on other people's consciousness. Then there's the third aspect, which I referred to earlier, which is, of course, shaping the consciousness that isn't confined to somebody's brain. And... You can have effects there, although there again, it's going to take you hard work, and it may take more than one person to have a significant effect. Um, good example, during the worst part of the opening sections of the, of the Second World War, um, English occultist Dion Fortune and a whole, some hundreds of other occultists in Britain, basically threw everything they had into a project to keep the, the morale of the British people from collapsing the way had well, you know the way it had happened in Poland and in France and so on, where people just panicked and collapsed, and the Nazis just went right right over them. And it worked. How much magic contributed to them? How much it was you know Winston Churchill's alcoholic um, enthusiasm? Whatever was going on, it worked. Britain didn't collapse, which Hitler very much expected it to, which is why he was so completely disconcerted by Britain's refusal to surrender. And the Second World War ended a lot better than it might have. You can do that with magic. Not easy, but it takes some work. And of course, one of the the key 
parts of magic is ritual, which is one of the big things that uh, people will obviously think of when they think of occultists in the woods, in mm-hmm. the robes. You you mentioned it there uh, as emotionally charged psychodrama. What did you what mm-hmm. did you mean by that? Oh, basically, the, the, you, ritual to some extent, ritual is a crutch. If you've reached certain a certain level of skill, you don't actually need to do ritual at all. But because we tend to be, you know, as as human beings, we're very strongly affected by our physical senses. And so let's let's say we're going to do a love spell, okay? And so we choose from the from a, from this list of correspondences. Magicians, occultists do a lot with correspondences. This corresponds to that. The color green is one of the things that corresponds to love. So you the number seven and so on and so forth. So you you set up an altar, and you put seven green candles on it, and you you have certain incense going that corresponds to the energies that, that relate to love, and you go through this dramatic process of opening the thing and you walk around and trace various figures in the air and you intone various names and words of power and you do all this stuff. You, you're building yourself up to, an emotion, to a kind of emotional pitch where you can get past the rational mind and just throw your energy, throw all your mental and emotional energy into the work you have in mind. You reach it, zap, click, it happens, you close down the ritual in a formal way to kind of get out of that ritual space, and then you clean everything up and go about your time. It's all a way of shaping consciousness, and it shapes consciousness through practice and through known effects of certain things on the human mind. You know, there, there are certain incenses that stir the emotions in, in, in predictable ways. There are certain incenses that will give you that sort of warm, fuzzy, romantic feeling. There are certain incenses that give you that cold, clear, saturnine, you know, I could care less about the rest of the world feeling, or what have you. And each of those corresponds to a pattern of consciousness that you're trying to, you're trying to work with. So there, there are, I mean, ritual is, it's like saying, well, what does music do? Okay, ritual is a performing art. Magical ritual is a performing art where the audience and the performer are the same person. And it's a, it's a reliable way to get certain effects in consciousness, and that's why we use it all the time. Within uh, ritual, I'm guessing then that, that things such as robes, wands, staffs, candles, these are all uh, just kind of additional things to uh, ramp up that emotional energy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. If, you know, if you've been, let, let's, let's say you're an occultist and you've spent the last five years, you've been studying these strange old books and you've been practicing simple rituals, you've been doing this, that, and the other, you've built up these chains of association in your mind so that the energy that, that is involved in things like love, okay, it connects to the color green and the number seven and, these very, and this kind of incense and that kind of what have you. So here you are, you, you, put, you, you put on your green robe. And you have your green candles, and you burn the incense, and, and everything around you focuses on this same set of concepts. It's just endlessly repeating in symbolic form the, the state of consciousness you're trying to get into. And with a little practice, you can use that to get into it, click, and you're there, and you can do things with it. Now, eventually, with practice, you get to the point where you don't need that. You can just sit back and close your eyes and breathe and breathe slowly and deeply for a while, and then build up certain things in your imagination and click. You're in that space, and that's the point where you've achieved what what occultists call adeptship. If you're an adept, that's what you can do. So, uh, if you're an adept, you no longer need this this psychodrama. You can yeah. simply sit. Now, and, you yeah, may you you're... may still use yeah you may still use the ritual stuff because it's fun. 
I mean, let us not forget one of the main reasons that people do magic is that it's less boring than sitting on your couch watching the telly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's a lot. It's a lot of fun. It's a performing art. It's like again, it's like music. Lots of people like to play music, and they like to play music because it's enjoyable. So, a lot of a lot of some of the some of the most the most over the top adepts I've ever met still do a lot of ritual because they're good at it. They enjoy it. Why not? But they don't have to. They can get the same. They can get the same effects sitting. To, you know, sitting in their bathrobe in an easy chair. They close their eyes and it's out. It happens. With regard to these 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 rituals, of course, there's the many many years of tradition. Of course, one of the things you state actually quite a few times, and I think it's clear that you wanted to make this very very clear to people in in a magical education, is m- magic isn't simply what you want it to be. Some things work, some things don't. Um, yeah. And but so with regard to these traditions, such as uh, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn or Druidry, which I know that those are the two that you're the most familiar with, how did how did they find out? what worked was it simply a case of trial and error or was there something more there um that's a really complicated uh, question since i wasn't there for the whole time it's you know I, I have to i have to kind of speculate um there was a lot of trial and error but it's trial and error extended over a very 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 long time because the magical traditions you could trace the lineage of the magical traditions we have now things like the golden dawn back to early egypt say 5,000 years of history. It's, it's very straightforward. You know, from the Golden Dawn through various magical um, traditions um, in, the, in the early modern period to the Renaissance, um, through the Renaissance by way of connections with the Muslim world to the old Neoplatonists whose work was picked up by, the, by a lot of Muslim occultists who passed on in books like the Picatrix, which I've translated. And then from the, the Neoplatonists got it from, from Egypt, ultimately. Um, by way of figures like Pythagoras, and from Egypt, you have this you know, this three thousand year tradition of magical working. The ancient Egyptian language has no word for religion, but it has a word for magic. <laughs> um, in fact, there's there's an old Jewish proverb that says that that God, when, when when God made the world, He divided all the magic into world into ten parts and gave nine of them to the Egyptians. <laughs> <laughs> does it say? And does so, it say where the other part went? Um, it, it got, the other part got scattered among everybody else. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> but, but yeah, um, so we ba- basically, when we're, when we're taking this traditional occult material from the Golden Dawn or from some of these other things, um, we're dealing with 5,000 years of recorded experience where, where people have been doing things and um, writing up the results and passing them on to their students and saying, try this you'll like the results, or don't do that, it will blow up in your face. And we can see even in, in, in relatively modern times, um, one of the basic rituals of Golden Dawn Magic is a thing called the Lesser Ritual of the Pentagram. Now, we don't need to get into the details right now. The thing I want to point out is that you, if you go to um, L.F.S. Levy's book, Doctrine and Ritual of High Magic, which was published like a uh, quarter of a century before um, the Golden Dawn was founded, there's an earlier version of that same ritual called the Conjuration of the Four. And you can see very clearly how somebody took the Conjuration of the Four and reworked it, tested it, did this, that, and the other. And there we have the, the Lesser Ritual of the Pentagram, which so many people use in the occult community these days. 
In the same way, in the, the main Druid tradition, one of the two main Druid traditions I've worked with, there's a ritual called the Sphere of Protection, which does the same thing. And I was able to trace that one back um, back to the early 20th century, where the, the person who had it then got it, I'm not perfectly sure. But you can see little changes being made, people adapting and saying, what happens if I do this instead? Ooh, that worked. Let's try it. Let's keep doing it. And so there's this very evolutionary process, this very sort of... Um, trial and error, um, that got an effect, nah, not so much. Okay, here's Alistair Crowley doing all this hot new stuff, and he crashes and burns. Let's not do that. <laughs> and, and, so, and so on and so forth. It, you know, and, and then you have a figure, ex- contemporary to Alistair Crowley, you've got uh, Dion Fortune, who also made some significant changes to the Golden Dawn system, but she was much more careful about it. And, of course, she wasn't stuck in that sort of antinomian, um, I'm going to shock my mom attitude that so often comes through in Crowley. <laughs> and so, she, you know, the system that she developed ended up, ended up becoming the, the seedbed for, frankly, most of the occult activity in, in Great Britain today, and a fair chunk of it in the United States. So you've got this sort of constant process of revision, of, of testing, of development, of experimentation going on. Uh, as I said, over like five thousand years, and it's had some. It, the results are pretty good. Your mention mentioning there of uh, Dean Fortune um, makes me think of a of, of a passage in Colin Wilson's uh, The Occult, which I just mm-hmm. just finished, where she becomes envious of someone and is casting some ritual, and realizes in that moment uh, she states something in one of one of her written works that uh, at that point she could have kind of turned the ritual on its head and and been extremely envious and targeted at the other person and realized that in that brief moment that was her her kind of in the midline and having the cho- the clear choice between uh, the left and the right-hand path. And, of mm-hmm. course, mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think I'm right in saying that Crowley is most definitely a uh, right-hand path. Um, do you have, do you think this binary is binary kind of left, left and right, left being benevolent and right being a bit more evil is, is helpful in any way, or is there any truth to this matter? It, it's, that's, that's one of those things that has been so garbled up over the years. I'm not sure... I'm not sure what, if anyone's quite clear what those mean anymore. Um, originally, now originally the term left-hand path, right-hand path, they actually come out of Sanskrit. And in the tantras, there are these left-hand path and right-hand path tantras, and everyone's very clear about it. The right-hand path is the, right-hand path tantras are the methods of spiritual practice that involve keeping to traditional social taboos and so on. So you keep celibacy, vegetarianism, all the, the other things that you, that you do if you're a devout, you know, if you're a devout Hindu ascetic. Um, and the left-hand path tantras do things that involve systematic controlled breaking of those taboos to get that emotional rush and then use it in various constructive ways. So you have this ritual where you actually, you know, you've been vowed to vegetarianism for X amount of time and you literally kill and eat an animal and you use the emotional reaction to that um, to go places. Okay, that got picked up by... um, by theosophists and people like that in the late 19th century, and they're the ones who defined it as the left hand or the right hand path is a path of good, and the left hand path is a path of evil. And then more recently, we have um, the among a lot of occultists these days, the right hand path is magic that involves working with other beings, non physical beings, and the left hand path is magic where you're only using your own personal power. 
And, you know, there's this vast sort of gallimaufry of debate up one side and down the other about the left-hand path and the right-hand path. And I'm not sure the terms are really that useful anymore. Um, it is certainly the case that there is a difference between benevolent magic and malevolent magic. And there are very good reasons to do the, malevolent, the benevolent kind and avoid the malevolent kind. Um, what Fortune was talking about was one of those moments where she, she had right in front of her the choice. Was she going to live up to her ideals? Or was she going to follow the promptings of her ego and her passions? And she chose to live up to her ideals, and, and good things followed. But... I'm not sure if it's really a matter of two separate paths, because there are certainly there are a lot of people who loudly proclaim that they belong to the right-hand path, who behave like complete jerks to other people, and um, and probably practice and you know apparently practice a fair amount of evil magic. Um, and equally, I've known people who are very specific. I'm you know I'm following the left-hand path. They're nice. They 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 may be doing the left-hand path, but they understand that. Um, you know, if you go around hurting other people, they hurt you back, and things like that. And so they're actually entirely, you know, they're, they're, they're very pleasant people. So I think it may be time to retire those terms and just recognize that um, there are very good reasons to use magic to bless and help and heal, and very good reasons not to use magic mm -hmm. to feed your ego and, and your passions. And just moving in a different direction there, another thing you mentioned in a magical education is, of course, much like... Uh, I don't know, artistic talent or uh, as uh, fitness-based talent. Many people have innate or or even inherited uh, magical abilities. It's possible for everyone to, in some way, uh, perform magic, but for others it would take more practice. But of course, those who inherit it and those who uh, and have natural gifts will still have to practice. But you, you mm -hmm. mentioned the re the reality of magic is woven into our blood and bones and nervous systems. Um, mm -hmm. I just wondered if you could just kind of comment on that. Oh yeah, the the thing is, magic is not something alien. It is not something that belongs to imaginary worlds far off and far away and long ago. It is something that surrounds us at every moment. Thus, you know what I was talking about: the unseen, the realm of unseen causes that that is of of the vibe, man, that constantly surrounds us. That's the world of magic, and we're actually all always doing magic. We just don't do it consciously. We don't do it competently because we don't know what we're doing. The guy we talked about in the discussion of love magic, who was kind of broadcasting signals that caused uh, potential girlfriends to back away from him, he was doing magic. Okay, it was not magic he wanted to do, but he picked up this this pattern of, of attitudes that was producing nonverbal signals that was a little flashing red light saying, "Stay away from this guy. He's a schmuck." And so that's magic. So we're all doing it all the time. The question is purely, do we want to do it consciously and competently and use it to achieve what we want to achieve in life? Or do we want to just let it kind of bumble on by itself, doing whatever it does, whatever, whatever the habits we picked up in childhood and the beliefs we got, we got force-fed in school have led it to do? Um, I, I do want to say, though, there is talent. Some people are talented at magic. Some people are less talented at magic. Everybody has some talent at magic because we're, we're we all again we all practice it all the time. In my experience, magical talent is a minor factor in whether a student becomes a good magician. The one thing that matters more than anything else to forget about talent, forget about anything else. It doesn't matter who your family was or whether you have the big book or anything like that. Are you willing to do daily practice? Are you willing to put in half an hour a day 
uh, one sitcom worth of time every morning. Seriously, that's all it takes. If say, somebody who's willing to who's willing to put in half an hour of daily practice will climb to the summits of magical attainment, no question. They will become master occultists in time. Um, it's, it's it's a lot of work, but half an hour a day will do it. And that's the test because of oh, say twenty people who approach me saying, "Wow, I want to learn magic." If I'm lucky, two or three of them will actually be willing to do daily practices. The other ones will talk a great game, and they will um, wave their hands, and they'll, they'll fawn over me, and they'll do all this other stupid stuff. But they won't actually do the work, and so they're a complete waste of time. In terms of magic, they need to go do something else with their time, like watch football games. Because um, they're not going be, to become a cultist. They're never going to learn it until, unless you're willing to put in the time. Doing the daily practice is all that matters for all practical purposes. Mm-hmm. Same as same as kind of any <laughs> any skill, really. Oh, exa- exactly. I like to compare it to music on the one hand and martial arts on the other. Um, it does not matter whether you're musically talented. If you pick up an instrument and you work with it, you, know, you put an hour a day into playing the guitar, okay? You're going to get to the point where you can play the guitar pretty well. And in the same way, you can be the clumsiest person on the block. Go down to the dojo for th- you know for a couple of hours, three times a week, every week. Keep at it. They're used to clumsy people, trust me. Um, and you'll learn how to do it. You'll work your way through the katas. You'll get to the point that your punch can break a board. Okay, it doesn't matter whether you know. You'll have to overcome a lot of fear and a lot of um, a lot of false attitudes on the way. But that's one of the other ways that martial arts and magic are similar. But yeah, it all comes down to practice. If you're willing to do the work, the doors are open before you. If you're not, it does not. None of the other things matter at all. Do you, Do you think it because it's not a physical thing that people are you know almost assume? Oh, it's my own mind. I should just be able to kind of do it. Well, I think that's part of it. I think that's part of it. But there's also one of the real problems we face comes out of all of this fantasy stuff. Okay, all the fantasy fiction, all the Harry Potter stuff and so on. You've got all of these people for and who for whom this fantasy of being the special one. You know, like Harry Potter, who is this special one who is destined to do battle with Lord Moldywarp or whatever the guy's name was. Um, you know, he's special. He's got the lightning bolt in his forehead. And so everything revolves around him. People love that fantasy of being the special one. Okay, and if you're the special one, especially in reams and reams and reams of bad fantasy, you don't have to work at it. You don't have to learn and study and sweat. You're just special, so everything happens for you. And so people come to magic with that with that, that expectation, and then they learn that it's going to take them half an hour a day every day of, of daily practices, which you know they lose their excitement pretty quickly. Um, even even like ritual. The basic rituals, you keep on doing them for two months, three months, and it's, you're going to go through a period when it's kind of dull. And then there's meditation, which is the most boring activity in the history of, of everywhere. Okay? That's the whole point. You, have, you, know, you sit there very still. You're, bre- you're breathing slowly and rhythmically. You're keeping your mind focused on some concept or some symbol or what have you. It's dull. And that's the whole point. Because it's only when you when your mind finishes doing this sort of monkey jumping around looking for something to distract itself with that you can actually get down to the real work. 
so yeah, so pe- but people who come expecting to be special, expecting to have the lightning bolt on their forehead or something, mm-hmm. and then they learn that not only are they not um, special, but they're actually going to be bored out of their skulls for half an hour a day in the hope that two, three, four years from now, they're going to achieve some, you know, the same basic um, capacities for magical action that any other two or three or four year student has done. They run like rabbits. With, with the with the boredom thing there, I think since since I've started practicing, which is kind of daily meditation and uh, mm-hmm. Franz Bardon's initiation into hermetics, which I, the, Excellent. which I believe uh, you believe isn't too great for beginners? Um, it depends. Some people find it works very well for them. I don't tend to recommend it because most beginning students um, typically crash and burn sometime in the fir- in the first two sections, and there are others. It, you know, there are others that are easier for people to get into. But you know, if Barton appeals to you, if 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 you're getting and you're getting good results with it, good heavens, keep at it. Oh well, I'm being being extremely patient with it because I don't. People, the uh, there's some of the commentaries on it which I tried not too too much to read, but they're saying make sure you have the basics down and the and the rest will come with it. You know, I think oh, yeah. th- was it were those who crushed and burned? Did it seem that they they rushed? Well, I think it's part it's partly that, and it's partly that um, they were expecting something that they weren't getting, or um, I, it's it's a very thing. It requires a certain kind of personality to really to really get good results with Barden. You may have that. But no, seriously, if it's if it's working for you, keep at it. That's all. That that's, that is a, it's a solid system. There's a question though. There that it, what does working mean in this in this sense? It depends very much on what system of magic you're practicing. If we're talking Bardon, okay, working is first of all you're going to start getting you're going to start getting a sense of that subtle energy that surrounds you all the time. You're doing the breathing. You're learning to breathe energies into your body and out of your body. You're also learning self-knowledge. You're doing the white and black mirror exercise where you're writing down all your good points, all your bad points, and really analyzing your personality. That right there is an, is an amazing exercise, by the way, and, and it should be kept up um, over time because you, you'll end up learning an enormous amount about yourself. And the various other exercises, they have the effect of, you know, the, they have the effect of beginning to make you aware of the unseen and then giving you the ability to shape it later on in the in the book, you know, you've got to the point you get to the point where you're actually concentrating elemental forces, you know, water, fire, air, earth, not the physical substances, but the subtle energies that correspond to them. And you can actually do stuff with that. You can do serious stuff with that. You've got the development of clairvoyance and clairaudience and so on. And so basically it's a course of what what you're achieving there is the ability to perceive the unseen and to do stuff with it. Meanwhile, working with your personality and developing the capacity to do that in a balanced fashion. Mm-hmm. If we're talking go- your basic Golden Dawn setup, mm-hmm. um, there you're going to be doing the Lesser Banishing Ritual of the Pentagram every day, the Middle Pillar exercise along with that, um, some meditation and a divination. Okay, that's your basic toolkit. The Banishing Ritual is cleaning you. It's basically the, the esoteric equivalent of a daily shower. So you're cleansing your energy, you're getting rid of various imperfections and impurities, you're developing that capacity to sense energy. The middle pillar exercise is energizing certain subtle centers in your in your subtle body, which again are starting to develop certain inner capacities for perceiving the unseen and for acting on it. Uh, meditation, 
Meditation is you're beginning to calm, focus, center your mind. You're beginning to be able to use it for something more than just chasing after your passions. And you're starting to get into those aspects of symbolism that are actually going to open ways of connection with the unseen. Divination, best tool known to develop the, the intuition. When you've been doing daily and daily divination for a couple of years, you get to the point that suddenly you'll get a hunch. You'll know, you know, you do not want to go down that street. You need to go down this street instead. You go down this street instead. And there's this little used bookstore and there's a book sitting on the, in the window that you've been trying to get for the last two years and there are no copies in any of the online bookstores. You go in and get it, okay? Or you go down this street instead of that street and then you hear the muffled thud down that street because a car just blew up. You develop intuition, you develop the ability to sense the currents of the unseen and you let yourself be guided by that and you avoid a lot of mistakes and you end up benefiting in various ways. Uh, so that's what you get from that kind of fact. Each system of magical training develops different things. Could Go we on. comment on uh, the Celtic, go, uh, is it Celtic Golden Dawn system, your own Druidry system? Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, one, one of the several Druidry systems I work with. Uh, the Celtic Golden Dawn, actually, the Celtic Golden Dawn is Golden Dawn magic for people who aren't comfortable with Judeo-Christian symbolism. Because the, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn works with Judeo-Christian symbolism all the way. It works with God. It works with angels. It works with the Hebrew, the Hebrew letters and all of their symbolism. It's, it's, very, it's very suitable toward, for Jewish and Christian occultists. Um, there are a lot of people these days who find that very uncomfortable for various reasons. And so the Celtic Golden Dawn was designed to provide a good, solid course of standard Golden Dawn training for people who are comfortable with Celtic spirituality instead. So same course of development as the one I just traced out, but working with, working with the same energies under different names and with different symbolism. So what is a good way for a beginner to kind of find out what 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 would work for them and what they're looking for and how to find the, the not the correct system, but the system that would be the most applicable to their, um, their um, will? I, I, wish, I wish there was a good answer to that. <laughs> because the problem is for somebody to do a, a good guidebook of that sort, they would have to basically practice all the systems of magic there are. Mm-hmm. And, and then they'd also have to have a huge amount of experience with different kinds of students. So they could say, well, you know, if you're this kind of person, you really need to go into Golden Dawn magic. But if you're this kind of person, try Druidry instead or take up Hoodoo or that, 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 that. Um, or, you know, or the Franz Barton or what have you. We don't have that kind of database yet. Mm-hmm. And so all we can do and what I recommend to you know, people who are interested in magic, they pick up, go, go, go to a library, go to a, a good occult bookstore or something, and pick up a few books and read them, and just see what resonates with you. I was very fortunate in that one of the first books I encountered was The Magician, His Training and Work by W.E. Butler. It's a lovely little book. It pr- does an extremely good job of, present, of pre- presenting the kind of the flavor, the feeling of Golden Dawn magic in, in its Dion Fortune variant. And I read that book and I said, oh man, this is what I want. So I had no questions. And then I was able to find some other books on that system and go to town. Um, there isn't really anything for a lot of the other books out there. A lot of the other systems out there don't necessarily have that kind of book available. But a certain number of them do. And if you just if you do some reading, and I would recommend any potential student of the occult, do some serious reading. Um, go to the library, visit occult bookstores, look around. If you have the chance to talk to people 
and ask them about their experience and what they like and what they don't like. Talk to them. Don't let them recruit you. Just find out what, you know, what they have to say. And just spend a while getting a sense of what's out there. It's very much as though you were, you were trying to decide. You, 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 want to, you want to do music. You don't, know, you don't know what instrument, what style. You need to listen to a bunch of music and you need to read up on music and maybe meet some musicians and so on and assess that in terms of your own interests, your own tastes, your own capacities, and say, you know, I think I want to play rock guitar. Mm-hmm. And then you can go get an electric guitar and start learning, and get some lessons and start learning. Okay. Another, uh, just a couple of quick more questions here. Um, I think in general, so those who are practicing, I think if, if you're with a group or an event or with a community, of course, the advice isn't as it's needed as much there because you already have the people that you're you're with and they'll give mm-hmm. you advice. So do you have any advice for what seems to be increasingly common, uh, which is the solitary magician? So, so, solitary goes, yeah, there, a lot of people are doing solitary practice these days and a lot of them actually have for a very long time. And it's not a bad idea because unfortunately human relationships and group politics being what they are right now, a significant number of the groups out there who claim to be teaching magic are not good group, good people to, to, to be involved with. So what I, evolve, what I recommend there is, again, start by doing some reading and some research and get a sense of what, what you think works for you, and then choose a book of basic magical instruction. There are quite a few of them out there. I've written several. And so have a lot of other people, of course. Choose the book, start the practices, and keep going no matter what until you've finished the practices in the book. That's going to be your big challenge because what always happens, what always happens is about um, – Usually it's it's a month, somewhere between one or three months into the process. You're going to get to the point, it's starting to get dull, you're not making anything like as much progress as you think you ought to be making, and you're absolutely certain to go, okay, I guess I chose the wrong book, I need to go to try a different book. Okay? That's where you fail. If you go jumping to another book, you're going to do the same thing with that book too. And then the next book, and the one after that, and you're never actually going to master anything. Mm -hmm. That's the point where you need to buckle down with redoubled effort and just keep on slogging ahead with that one book. Even if it's not the right book for you, the process of going all the way through it and coming out the other side will teach you what you need to know. So that's the advice. Choose a book. It honestly doesn't matter which book. Choose a book. Do all of the work in it, even the stuff you don't like. Come out the other side. Then you'll actually have some have some knowledge, and you'll be able to look around more precisely and assess other options. Say, okay, now I want to go on to this book, or you know, I really don't think that kind of magic is for me. I'm going to do this stuff instead. You'll know enough to do that. Mm-hmm. And of course, um, there's going to be pitfalls and hurdles and, and mistakes, and perhaps even dangers on the way. And, and one that specific, and perhaps you can comment on a few of these, but one that specifically comes up, which I know you're not fond of, but when I when I've searched uh, the Reddit occult forum, which is one of the more lively uh, occult mm-hmm. forums that I've come across, and I know you frequent there occasionally. Oh, um, I'm I, found there now and again. Yeah. When I see the beginner threads on there and beginner texts, the one that's often always at the top, unfortunately, is Alan Chapman's Advanced Magic for Beginners, uh, and this seems to be the one which is constantly recommended. Um, and this seems to be a very common kind of almost false start. Yeah, I have I have not really studied the book in question. I don't know that I, I'm certainly not. It's certainly not one that I could recommend simply because it. Yeah, what I've seen of it, it does not impress me. But you know, 
it's not everybody has to make their own choices in this mm-hmm. game yeah. um, I might my, my taste and my experience lead me to want to direct people toward traditional occultism where they're going to have a foundation of occult philosophy they're going to have some of the the practices that are unfashionable but very effective and so, you know, if somebody wants to go going, zooming off after this or that nouveau magic thing, it's, you know, it really is their business. Okay. Um, so is there any other common pitfalls or dangers or hurdles that you, you would point um, out to a beginner? Yeah. The, the, besides the, besides the pitfall of, um, just deciding the, no, it's the wrong book. I should do something else. It's the moment, the moment of panic that inevitably happens when you suddenly realize that it's not just a game. Everybody has this. No matter how enthusiastic you are when you begin, every, you know, sooner or later you're going to get that moment where something, you, you cannot pretend <laughs> that it's not real anymore. And you freak out. I certainly did. And if you have somebody to contact... Um, you know, even just posting something to, to an online forum or something, that's one thing. Uh, sometimes some of us have to white knuckle it. We do, you just deal. But a certain number of people hit that moment and run like rabbits. And they panic and they flee from magic and they tend to get very nasty about it in the future because they're terrified because it, it's real. It actually works. It has, something actually happened. I literally, there, there was one case, long complex story we don't have to get into here, but this, this kid who was insisting that he was really, really enthusiastic about this and that and the other, one of, one of my friends at a meeting of this occult group had him do this particular exercise that makes you really intensely physically aware of subtle energy fields. And, you know, there's this various setup and then you bring your hands together and, I have never actually seen all the blood drain out of someone's face <laughs> like that before. It was stunning. And that was that. And things kind of unraveled very quickly in terms of his alleged enthusiasm thereafter. <laughs> um, it's, yeah, you know, people will panic. One of the reasons that I, I, I do a lot of open posts and things like that to talking to the people who, who are reading and working with my books is precisely that I get all the time people popping up on, on one of my forums and saying, I, I, can you please help me deal with this? I did X, Y, Z and something actually happened and I'm, uh, and yeah, you know, they, just, they need somebody to talk to them and, and explain to them, no, you're not crazy. No, you know, it's nothing, nothing's wrong. It's okay. Everybody goes through this. You sit down, have a nice cup of tea. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's actually one of the major pitfalls. Other than that, if you, other than that, and the um, not the not the right book thing, if you're doing a well-designed system of magic that has, for example, um, you know some kind of some kind of good protective practice involved in it, and some meditation, some some ways to practice self-knowledge and things like that, it's actually it's safer than learning to ride a bicycle. It really is. You're not going to land yourself in much trouble, and you just keep on going. It's a, you know. You... There's nothing wrong with a bit of danger, anyway. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and again, no, that that little fear fear is useful. All of these, you know, the sort of new age twaddle. Love means letting go of fear. Well, no. <clears throat> um, <laughs> if you let go of fear, 
you go waltzing across the freeway in rush hour, and you know, you, and you get flattened by a car you conv- you were convinced couldn't hurt you. Um, fear has a place. And getting getting a little scared now and again is a good way to wake up to reality. So you know that's not a problem. Okay. Um. If unless there's anything you'd like to add in terms of an occult one hundred and one, something we might have glossed over or missed. Um. Yeah. the the only The only thing I'd like to add at this point is simply that um. There's there's a whole world out there. There's a whole new world that our society has taught each of us can't exist and shouldn't exist, and it's bad and evil and wrong and wicked and non-existent and superstitious and ah, you know. There's a whole world out there. It's full of astonishing things. It's full of life, and everybody who's listening to this, if they choose to, can set foot in that new world. They can go there. You don't have to spend full time there. You can, you know, you can just, you can dip your, you can dip your toes into the water to change metaphors a little bit. But it's there. It doesn't hate you. It's not after you. It is not full of oogie boogie monsters or anything like that. There, you know, there are some things you want to, you want to keep away from, and some things you want to chase away from you. But there are simple, straightforward ways of doing that. There's this whole world. It's waiting for you. Do you want to experience it? There you are. <laughs> 